Jonah chapter 4. This is a dialoguing chapter. It's not a happy chapter, as we will, you will see um, as we begin to walk through it. And it's going to consist mainly of Jonah praying, talking to God, God asking Jonah three specific questions. And so there's lots of dialogue. So Jonah and God are going to be the focus. It's not going to be Nineveh. And God is going to be going after the reality of what's going on with uh, Jonah's heart. And let me just say this by way of talking about questions. God is never afraid of our questions and our attitudes. So y'all with me? So he's not afraid for us to pour our heart out in honesty. But you and I should be ready for his response to our honesty. That he may have some direct things he wants to ask. um, And he may want to say. So if the book of Jonah was all just about the rescue of Nineveh, then we would have finished it all last week. Nineveh has come alive. There's been this great repentance. Uh, God has relented. He's turned away from the word that he said he would do, that he was going to bring judgment if they did not repent. But the book of Jonah is more than just the rescue of Nineveh. It's about there's some unfinished work, and the unfinished work is uh, there are some things not right in Jonah's heart, and God is going to, watch this, he's going to do this. He's just going to, it's just going to, Jonah, Jonah, just going to tap at Jonah's heart and say, Jonah, there's some things here that are not right. And so in the midst of this dialogue, we're going to see that God is going after Jonah's heart. God has this never-ending love and graciousness and mercy that has come to us, and he is going to continue to be that way to Jonah, even though Jonah um, should be at a place where he's just greatly worshiping God for what has happened. Sadly, let's be honest, we can have some Jonah in us at times. We can, we can be like him. We can have a little bit of a Jonah, and sometimes we can have a lot of Jonah uh, in our hearts. The second thing by way of introduction this morning, um, you will see this. I want, we're going to deal with the pettiness of Christianity. And so we'll look at that today. So the story of Jonah is not one that's been thought up in the mind of someone But it's been recorded for us to read, to get to chapter 4, so that it will reveal the triviality of the reality of our heart that sometimes we are just petty and bitter and full of ourselves. And so chapter 4 is going to reveal the grandness of God's heart, and it's going to reveal the triviality that can be true about us. Now, God knows how to deal with the wickedness of sinners. But what does God do when he encounters smug, arrogant, anger-filled church members? What does God do in that? And that's what he's going to deal with in chapter 4. In some ways, that reality about his children and the way his children are is a much bigger issue in wrestling with, and we will see what happens with that. So this should have been one of these things where Jonah's standing in the midst of this great revival that should have just caused him to just go, God, glory to you. But Jonah, standing in the midst of the city, allows his emotions to take over. And Jonah should have been about establishing ministry in the city. He should have looked about what's going on going, man, what could we do? Can you imagine the Bible studies that we could start in Nineveh? And Jonah just has none of those feelings, none of those emotions, none of those desires. And his weak heart is going to allow him to miss so much of what God wants to do. So let me remind us as we walk through this today, he is standing in the midst of awakening. All around him, throughout the city, all that he can see is people sitting in sackcloth and ashes. They are calling out to God. They are repenting. The Spirit of God is just moving through the city. Jonah sees it all, and his heart is weak. And so this prophet is standing in the midst of this, but he doesn't see what is fully taking place, and he doesn't embrace it. So it's a dialoguing chapter. We're going to see the pettiness that can be associated with God's children. And then let me just deal with, by way of introduction, the theme of chapter 4. And here's the theme of chapter 4. God has the right to extend and give mercy to whomever God desires to extend it to. God also has the right to use a reluctant prophet who's got a heart 
who is not really for the people he's ministering to, God's going to use him to do this great work. And so this is a chapter affirming the great sovereignty of God, that regardless of our heart, God can accomplish his purposes. So the theme of chapter 4 is God gets to extend mercy to whomever God wants to extend mercy. The second theme of chapter 4 is this, is that God followers, Christ followers, are never to see some people regardless of race, regardless of what religion they may have or what nation they're like or what their history is like as less deserving of mercy than the mercy that his children have already received. And that's where Jonah is. He felt like Nineveh did not receive um, mercy or should not receive mercy. Last thing by way of introduction, it wasn't on the outline, I added it this morning, and it was simply this. Jonah in this book, four chapters, is a part of two moves of God. If, you, if you'll remember back with me in chapter 1, what do the sailors end up doing? They end up calling on Yahweh and bowing on the boat. So Jonah, um, even though he's running, uh, this running in this great storm and the calmness of the storm causes the sailors on the boat to worship Yahweh. Now he's in the midst of the city and he sees a great awakening. And so this man should have... I have some puberty issues this morning, so y'all just bear with me. Okay, I am still battling this thing that I've had for a little over a week. Not sick anymore, but leftover stuff. And so this, all of this that he has seen, from the boat to being in the belly of the well to standing in the midst of Nineveh, should have led to chapter 4 having different words written, but they aren't. Um, chapter 4, I believe, is just a incredible sad story of a prophet of God and how he responds to what God does. So let me just remind us, first point this morning is I want to talk about the transformation of Nineveh and just want to remind us of last week in case you weren't here. Our God is a global God. He has a global heart. He, he wasn't, God was, God wanted to choose a people, Israel, make them his own. They would be the covenant people. They would uniquely be his children. They would, he would be their God and he would use them to influence the nations. And just over and over, they wrestled with this reality of walking with God. And so, so God has always, oh, going back to Genesis chapter 12, has been a global God whose heart is for the nations. So the revelation of truth comes to Jonah. Jonah goes into Nineveh after the second time and after God gets his attention from his running to being in the belly of the great fish, and Jonah speaks. And when Jonah speaks, God's word takes over, and really the Holy Spirit takes over in the city of Nineveh. You go all the way to the New Testament on the night that Jesus was crucified. Jesus shares some things about how the Holy Spirit works in the world. When you read these, you can see this working of the Spirit in Nineveh. Listen, this is John chapter 16, verse 8 through 10. And when he comes, Jesus said, he will convict the world concerning sin. Jesus is speaking about the Holy Spirit and righteousness and judgment. So when the Spirit comes, he's going to convict the world of sin, of, of what's wrong, what's wrong with our nature, our choices, of righteousness, and coming judgment. The Spirit is going to do that. And so Jonah steps into Nineveh. He says, 40 days, and if you don't repent, God's going to destroy your city. And so he speaks this judgment. Verse 9, John 16. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And you just see in the streets of Nineveh that the Spirit is at work. Spirit was at work on the day of Pentecost. This is Acts 2.37. After Peter had preached this sermon filled with Scripture, he said this, uh, the, uh, Luke records this, Now when they heard this, they were cut, the citizens that were listening to this, or those who had come to the Passover, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So the Spirit was at work. This revelation of truth came. Spirit was at work. In Nineveh, there was this deep conviction of sin. It led to brokenness and mourning of the Ninevites to sit in sackcloth and ashes, so much so that the news reached the king. He began to repent. He took off his royal clothes. He got off his royal throne, and he put on sackcloth as well. Instead of sitting on his throne, he sat in ashes and he called out to God in the city, the whole city, repented. Paul wrote something very unique about brokenness and rejoicing in the midst of what God does 
the brokenness, the mourning, and the recognition of sin that leads to repentance. Listen to these words. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. Paul writes, As it is, I rejoice, not because you are grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief, it only produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, Paul wrote. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. And at every point, you prove yourselves innocent in the matter. And so Nineveh was just like what Paul wrote about the Corinthians, that there was a brokenness over their sin and a godly grief over what God had said and their condition standing before God that the Ninevites repented. So there's this revelation of truth. There's this deep conviction of sin that happens in the city. There's this brokenness and mourning where there's faith and repenting and God relents. And Nineveh is transformed. And I just want to remind us, we talked about it last week, and maybe you were not here. The indication from chapter 3 is the whole city of at least 600,000 people estimated. The whole city repented. I mean, that, the staggering reality of what took place within the walls of Nineveh has never happened before in the history of the world. This is the greatest revival that has ever been known, that has ever been recorded in one particular place. And God just unbelievably moved. And he did so, secondly, this morning, through the transformation and the transforming power of his word. Assyria at this time was the known power of the world, and they were a cruel, cruel people. You did not want the Assyrians as your enemy. This was the last people group that you could imagine would ever turn to worship Yahweh. But Jonah speaks the words of God. The prophets before his very eyes sees this transformation of this pagan, cruel, idol-worshiping people. And they have heard God's word and they've responded to God. And what happens within the walls of Nineveh is absolutely amazing. You see, the speaking of God's word and, and God taking over and God doing this great work is beyond anything that, that can take place in the world. And there's been times throughout the history of the world where God's word has fallen on a place and it's awakened people and it's been absolutely amazing. And I thought this week as I was preparing about Ezekiel chapter 37, this famous passage where Ezekiel is taken to this field where there's just bones everywhere. None of the bones are put together. And, and God asked the prophet, can these bones live? Is there any way for these bones to live and, and become something significant? And, and Ezekiel says, oh Lord God, you know. And so God said to him, prophesy over these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, to cover you with skin, and to put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so Ezekiel prophesied. He said, I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I spoke God's word, I prophesied. There was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. And the, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the fourth winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and a great breath came into them, and they lived and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Somebody asked a question, can God do that again? Does God have the power to speak like that and awaken what's dead and just lying somewhere, not put together? Does he still have this power? Can he do this? Is he even interested enough in awakening his own people? It's great questions. After all, he has just moved in power 
in a city among a people who had no clue about Yahweh, who were just like that, just dead. And God had awakened them. So the obvious answer to this question is, yes, God can do whatever God wants to do. He's got this great power. I think he's looking for people to cry out to him, God, will you move in me like you have done before? So out of this great awakening, Jonah is standing in the midst of it, up close and, and seeing it, and he's just unmoved by it. Just unmoved by it. No matter, well, he's moved just in the wrong direction. So let's look at the next thing. Thirdly, I want to talk about the toxic and tender heart in chapter 4. So Jonah 4 is also going to reveal to us the toxicity that can exist in our heart and the tender heart of God. We're familiar with this. This is Jeremiah. If you're taking notes, Jeremiah 17, 9. It should be one of those verses that we memorize. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Look up here. Desperately sick. You ever been desperate? You know, I mean, really desperate. Out of desperation, what do we do? We seek. We seek satisfaction. So Jeremiah says, listen, the heart is incredibly deceitful. It's so deceitful, it goes to the top of the list among deceit. There's nothing more deceitful on planet Earth, nothing more trick, trickery involved in manipulation and all this than our heart. As a matter of fact, it's so bad, it is desperately sick. It loves its sickness and pursues things to keep it in sickness. Desperately sick. And then he says this, who can, ask the question, who can understand the heart? And I thought long and hard this week about Jonah standing in Nineveh and just literally all around him. People are sitting. Nobody's tasting. We talked last week. No, they're fasting. Nobody's tasting anything. Nobody's feeding the animals. Animals and people did not taste anything. They had been given 40 days to repent before the judgment of God came. And boy, did they take it serious. And Jonah's standing in the midst of that, seeing this, looking at this, and it's just all around him. In Jonah's heart, instead of just being awakened to say, God, I'm falling down and worshiping you, his heart just gets desperately sick and darkness fills it. And the toxicity of his heart causes him to get angry at what he is seeing instead of being joyful at what he is seeing. Instead of capitalizing on the moment and turning to God in deep worship and awe and power of God's word, Jonah's heart immediately just says, something is not right in the city of Nineveh. And what Jonah couldn't see was what was wrong in the city of Nineveh was him. He was what was wrong in the streets of Nineveh. Everything else in Nineveh was going pretty good at the moment. A whole city was repenting before God. But Jonah's heart, in the midst of that, immediately turns in the wrong direction. And he has a huge heart issue with God and he's about to go in a very different direction. So in the midst of the city, watch this. The toxicity of Jonah's heart is there, but the tenderness of God's heart is also present in the city. God saw, 310 tells us, how the city responded, and God relented. 4-1 tells us, Jonah saw what God was doing in Nineveh, and he got angry. Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 tell us that Jonah was quick to be angry with God, but God was slow to be angry with Jonah in the midst of what his heart was like. God still, even in the midst of the city where Jonah's like, I don't like this, God. You shouldn't be moving like this, God. You should not do something to those, these kind of people who have been Israel's enemy for so long. They have popped into the kingdom throughout the centuries, and they have caused so many problems for us. God, how could you think about doing something like that? And even though that's his heart, God is being tender to Jonah, trying to get Jonah to see, Jonah, you have the heart problem. The people around you no longer have a heart problem. You have a problem, and God is being tender and patient with him in the midst of his anger. Fourthly, this morning, is that Jonah should have recognized a trigger in his life. And I want to talk for a moment about the triggers in our life that can lead us to sin. So let's look at the text. Um, chapter 4. I'm, I actually, let's read 310, and then we're going to read down through verse 4. And then we're going to uh, touch on triggers to our sin. All right, chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. 
But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? And that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said to him, Do you do well to be angry? I do not, I love the ESV, I do not like verse 4's translation. Basically what he's saying is this, What right do you have to be mad at what I've just done? He's just asking Jonah, What right do you have to be angry? So we're going to talk about verse 1 through 4. Let me just talk briefly about the triggers to sin. Sometimes there are moments in our lives, and I call them triggers um, to sin. They're not things that, mean, that make us sin, but they are moments where a certain place, a certain moment, um, a certain group of people that we may be with, they make us more susceptible to step into sin because of the environment and what is there. And there are a number of things. Sometimes, uh, sometimes some of the triggers for us are fear. You know, we're afraid of something that uh, is not necessarily maybe it's not going to work out or we're afraid of something that's going to come and, and that fear just takes over and we need to medicate ourselves. These triggers to sin are always involved with m- medicating our soul. And so um, sometimes fear is one of those things. And so um, as a way of not allowing the anxiety to take over, um, people may drink too much. They may uh, get themselves involved in immoral sexual activity or they may just get swallowed up in, in drugs or whatever, whatever the case may be. And these environments and these moments, they become kind of triggers for us. Jonah should have known his heart condition. And let me just say this to all of us. We need, every single one of us needs to know what are those kind of things that allow me to be more, more vulnerable to step into choices that I know are not going to be good for me. I've walked down that road. I've bought the T-shirt many different times, new logos, new colors of that T-shirt. And I've been there, but I keep going back, and I keep buying it, and I keep doing it. And eventually we need to recognize that going down that road only leads to heartache. So what causes me to start walking down that road to kind of to, to, to walking away from God, walking away from who I am? And once we see those trigger points and those things, those are the, that's where we need to deal with it. Because the problem is not way down the road. That's a sign of something back up here that we thought is really the issue, but we don't really want to deal with this issue. And so we walk down the road to medicate this issue and we ignore it. And sometimes it's an alcohol problem of being drunk all the time to medicate and there is a problem there, but there's a greater problem than the alcohol, and it's back down the road a little bit that has triggered us to go to medicate because we haven't dealt with this. Y'all with me? There are those things in our lives. So Jonah's got a trigger point. His trigger point is he hates the Ninevites. And so he should have said something like this when he stepped into Nineveh. God, you know that I'm going to have a hard time with this, that my heart's weak. I do not, I do not like these people. And I'm going to be obedient to you, and I'm going to need you to help me if you start to do something. So Jonah has this opportunity all along. It's his triggering point. And we're going to see some of those in a moment that lead to the collapse of his faith. But there are these aspects and trigger points for us in our life, and we need to recognize them. Sometimes we need to allow other people to come into our life so that we don't walk down those roads and we deal with the issue here. And the problem is a lot of times is we're, the issue's here, but we're, we want to spend all the time dealing with this, but the issue's back here. And we need people to pull us back and say, no, 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 no. Come here, let's deal with this. Because if we can deal with this, you're not going to walk down that road. So let's deal with this right here. So Jonah's got this reality for him. And he should have just been honest with God. He should have just said, God, I'm going to struggle with this. And so if we want to find true, lasting release from sin, then you and I have to identify why our heart does some of the things that it does. It's desperately sick, Jeremiah wrote. Desperately sick, deceitful. It tricks us, tells us. Life is found down the road. Life's found down there. Go down there again. 
Go down there again. Buy the t-shirt again. Spend a little bit more time there. And we get down there and the shame and all the stuff is there. So we need to recognize the triggers to our sin. Fifthly, is I want to talk now about the total collapse of faith because that's what we see with Jonah. Let's just read the text again. It's okay to read again, right? So let's read verse 1 through 3 again, 4, and let's see this. And, uh, and I want to talk about the total collapse of faith. And we see this in the heart of Jonah. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? God, you know, back there in Israel, I told you, this is exactly what you're going to do. This is what you're going to do. God, I don't want to see that. I don't want to go. Jonah knows what his problem is. God's going to be true to his character. He doesn't want God to be true to his character. And so he's running. So he, again, he recognizes his trigger point is going to be that God's going to be, God potentially is going to do something in Nineveh. So he said, Lord, I told you when I was yet in my country, this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Why are you so angry? What right do you have to be angry? So as we walk through, what I want to do is I want to show you what it looks like when a believer's faith just collapses. This is a prophet of God. God has shared his secrets with him. Jonah's been used of God. What happens when our heart, it just, for God, collapses and it just shrinks up, shrivels up, and it dies and it's not moved anymore? <clears throat> Sadly, as I said earlier, God sometimes has more problems with his children than he times with those who are not even in a relationship with him. Is that sometimes we're going to fight God and say, God, um, you're not managing things well, so won't you let me take over? And let me tell you what I think you ought to do in the world, in my life, etc. So here, let me walk through them. There's six of them. We're going to briefly touch on them. The first one is simply this is your faith is going to begin to collapse when you and I become unmoved by God's movement. When you and I become unmoved by God's movement, then you and I are beginning to have a sickness problem with our heart. Again, Jonah has seen the incredible move of God's work of mercy in the city. But Jonah wanted the Ninevites judged, not receiving forgiveness. And all around him is the movement of God, but Jonah's just unmoved by it. It's kind of like this. You ever done this? You ever come to church for a couple years and just because you're supposed to? Just kind of come in and, okay, at the right time, when you're singing the right song, I know I'm supposed to lift my hands at this part of the song. I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to maybe do this. And we've learned how to play the game. And our heart's not engaged in it. And we look around and it looks like, man, other people in here, they are so engaged with God. They speak about God. They sing about God. They seem to be alive when temptation comes and they say no to it. There's something there. And and you can be in a place like this where God's spirit is moving and just be unmoved by it. And sometimes it just comes from the callousness of our heart. And Jonah's heart becomes callous. And chapter 3 verse 10 just tells us that. When God saw what the Ninevites did, God, how they turned away from evil, God relented. God saw this is authentic. This is something real that they are doing. And Jonah's in the midst of it, and he's like, man, i got to get out of here as fast as I can. I don't want to be around this anymore. And worship should have just welled up in the heart of Jonah. And we find him in the midst of all this move of God, and he's doing this to God mad at God. God, why would you do something like that? And the scene is striking. It is unbelievably shocking. Standing in the midst of revival, he is unmoved by it. And that begins the collapsing totally of his faith. So if we're here this morning, and it's been weeks, months, years that we've been moved by God's Spirit, There's a way to get back, and it's the same way that we've seen in chapter 3. It's called repentance. It's repenting. God, I have just been unmoved with your calling upon me. I see you working, but 
but I've just had no interest in it. As a matter of fact, God, when I've seen you bless other believers, I've gotten mad at you because you brought blessing to somebody else. And God, I just, I'm unmoved so I confess it. So that's the first part of collapsing faith. Second one is simply this. And this is what Jonah does. And you'll find this very shocking when you look at the meaning of the Hebrew words here. Is so first one is he's unmoved by God's movement. Secondly, he attributed God's movement as something that was evil. So verse 1 says this, three distinct words. Displeased Jonah, exceedingly, and angry. You put all three of these together in the Hebrew, and particularly you look at the one uh, displeased, and exceedingly, and you put those terms together, here's what the Hebrew means. He saw what God did in the midst of Nineveh as evil. So God's Spirit had fallen upon Nineveh. They had repented. God's prophet, God's man, is standing in the midst of that. And he's looking around. And what should have been, this is holy ground. This wicked, evil city, just a few hours before, worshiping idols, cruel people, this has become a holy place. Imagine that, Nineveh becoming a holy place where the presence of God has fallen. And Jonah looks at it, and he doesn't see God. He sees, this is wrong. This should not happen. And these words mean this in the Hebrew. He saw the move of God as something that was evil. By the way, the word anger is just one letter away from danger. And Jonah sees this, and boy, his heart just gets hard, it's calloused, and he's unmoved. And he says, God, this is wrong. You should not do this. And Jonah just immediately gets angry in the city, but God's going to be slow to anger with Jonah. Are you glad that he is that way with us? I mean, I look at this, and it's just shocking how the prophet of God is responding here. He saw God as doing evil and thinking that God in some way had gone against his holiness in the city of Nineveh. A holy God would not rescue a people like this. And this reality just settles on Jonah in the city and it just burns him up. Jonah's 100% wrong. God is always righteously good. He is always good in his holiness. And what he has done here is absolutely good. See, here's Jonah's view of the matter. God, I'm fine with this as long as you write them off the earth. If you'll do that, I'll be okay with it. And that's really what I want. And because you haven't, I I got an issue with you, God. And he points to the heavens. God shows great grace, and Jonah sees it as a great evil. For Jonah, he knew God's grace, love, forgiveness was okay, and, and he kind of felt this way when it was extended to Israel and when it was even extended to himself in Jonah chapter 2. But how could God do this to an enemy of Israel? And I tell you, for most of my ministry, there's been this longing, and I've shared it over the last several weeks, that I cannot shake. It's a longing to see awakening. Um, And I have longed and prayed to see what Jonah got to see and to be a part of. I would love to be able to go somewhere and preach and just, man, God's spirit falls and thousands and thousands of people. It would just make me a deeper man of God. It would humble me and, and I would glorify who he is. And what he saw should have changed him completely right there in the midst of it and made him a godlier man and ready for more ministry. But actually what we're going to see, and we're going to talk about it next week, he stomps like a little baby, pouting, angry, And he goes outside the city and he waits outside the city to see if God's going to punish the city. And he's just out there pouting. And it should have just caused him to to go, God, Yahweh, you're my God. You're my God. And I worship you. It's interesting if you really want to know, was the the repentance of Nineveh authentic? Well, um, Jesus thought so. Listen to these words. They're found in Mark 12, 41 and Luke eleven thirty two. I'll read the Luke verse. They're exactly the same. Jesus said, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and will condemn it. So he's saying this, Nineveh, they're going to rise up with you generation 
who has had the Messiah come and live in their midst. They're going to rise up at the judgment. And here's the deal. And they're going to condemn your generation. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So if you think the Ninevites didn't really actually repent to follow God, well, Jesus says when he comes back to establish the millennial kingdom, he's going to stand up and there's going to be a judgment that takes place over the first century generation that got to see and hear Jesus and touch Jesus and eat with Jesus, be healed by Jesus, and then rejected him anyway. So this is authentic repentance that has taken place in the streets of Nineveh. And he just attributes God's movement as evil. Um, this, is, this is, in the New Testament, it's called the blasphemy of what? The Holy Spirit. This is what they were doing. Jesus was doing all these miracles, and the Pharisees said, he's doing this by the power of Satan. So they were attributing the work of God to evil and Satan. This is an Old Testament example of the prophet of God standing in there saying, God, this is evil. You should not do this. Here's the third thing. So one, he's unmoved by God's movement. Second thing that was collapsing his heart was he attributed God's movement as evil. And now he's going to protest and fight against the nature of God. This is his issue. If we look at verse 2. So he prays. He prayed in chapter 2. And it was like, sovereign God, I recognize uh, I shouldn't have run. And so, Lord, I'm going to look upon your temple again. So there's there's a recognition of the sovereignty of God but not here. So he prays to the Lord, and it's one full of anger. By the way, look up here just for a moment. Do you remember I shared with you in Jonah chapter 2, he quotes eight different psalms. Jonah knew the word of God. By the way, he's quoting another scripture. So he has an it standing in the midst of Nineveh, standing in the midst of the revival, angry at God, heart unmoved, attributes to what God is doing as evil, and yet he's still able to recall a scripture that he knows that came to us when Moses was on the mountain and, seen, and Moses said, God, I want to see your glory. And God said, you cannot see my glory. It will kill you. But I'll tell you what you'll do. I'm, I'll tell you what you do. Tomorrow, I'm going to pass by in front of you and I'm going to hide your eyes and I'm put you in the cleft of the rock and then I'll allow you to see my backside, but you can't see my face. Can you see my face? You're dead. You're a dead man. And so, so God passes by Moses in Exodus 34, it says this, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. So God reveals this truth about himself to Moses, and it became a part of the vernacular of the nation of Israel. So it's written through the Psalms. And numbers, Numbers 14, 18, Psalm 86 103, 145, Nahum quotes this, this from Exodus chapter 34. Nahum writes, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Nehemiah, it's quoted in chapter 9, verse 17. The prophet Joel quotes what God says of himself in Exodus 34. Rend your hearts, Joel says in verse 13, and return to the Lord your God. Here's why, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So Jonah prays again, recognizing, knowing the truth of God. And watch this. He wants to argue with God about the nature of God, that God should not be the way that God was in this moment. And so he's fighting the nature of God, and he complains to God that God is being true to being God. And again, this is in the midst of revival where God is showing how mighty God is to rescue the city of Nineveh. And he says to him, God, I told you way back when this is what you're going to do. And I didn't want to be a part of it then, and I really don't want to be a part of it now. Bottom line, his complaint and his desire is centered at that God is being God. And I tell you, if you and I were to be honest, there's probably been some moments in our life where we have said to God, God, why did you make me this way? God, why did you do this? God, why did you allow that? And we may have never said it out loud, but we have said it in our heart. And God hears both of those speakings. And 
Jonah's mad at God, and we have been mad at the nature of God. And Jonah's heart, as I said a while ago, is toxic, and it's at odds with God's heart. For watch this, he knows, he knows, he admits it. He just kind of condemns himself. He knows that God's going to be true to himself, that God's going to be true to God, but he doesn't like it. Jonah has this theological doctrinal issue with God, and it's this. He cannot reconcile what God has done in his mind, and so here's what it is. How could the love and mercy of God come to these people and not demand for justice at the same time? His mind knew that God loved Israel and didn't think and couldn't compute that God could ever love a pagan nation like Nineveh. And so he treats God's goodness as badness. And he shakes his hand at the Lord. He should have seen them as God saw them. It's just people who were hurting and confused, worshiping a false God, lost. You know what lost people do? They do lost things. And he should have understood none of us this way because they're lost. They've got the wrong God. They don't know my God. My God is abounding in love and mercy. He is faithful to those who love him for thousands of generations. And Jonah couldn't see it, and so he protests and fights the nature of God. And if you're here today and you're doing that, then I would say to you, your faith has collapsed. Because I just remind you, God's going to be God. He is always going to be true to his nature, regardless of how much we want to shake our fists, regardless of how much we want to protest. He's going to be God. And by the way, we want him to be that. We don't want him to be less than that. So he's been unmoved. He calls it evil. He fights the nature of God. And fourthly, he selectively uses scripture to justify his anger. Come on now. This is going to get personal. It's going to get real personal. He quotes one verse and says, God, all you are is loving. You never demand justice. All you are is loving. All you are is loving. (laughs) Could he think back to the Exodus and think what God did to Egypt and Pharaoh and remember that what does God do? God at times to his enemies exercises justice. And it's pretty firm, and it's pretty dramatic. The Scripture says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Somebody on the other side who just wants to limit God to a few verses could have said, God, that's not fair that you limited or you hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, just remind us, God's going to be true to the nature of God. And so if God decides he wants to harden Pharaoh's heart and he wants to soften Nineveh's heart, guess what God gets to do? He gets to do whatever he wants to do. And so Jonah whittles all of the Old Testament revelation about who God is to one verse that God spoke to Moses on the mountain and says, God, all you are is merciful. All you are is kind and compassionate. All you do is relent from disaster. You could go back. There's a place called Tyre. There's a place called Sidon. There's a place called the Midianites. God, over and over in the Old Testament, exercised his justice Remember, we're reading in Joshua right now. We're going to read. They're going to march into the promised land. And what's going to happen? They're going to destroy all these people. God's going to exercise judgment and justice on the Israelites' enemies as they settle the promised land. But Jonah, watch. He uses Scripture selectively. And in so doing, he shapes who God is in that moment in his eyes. And he limits God Instead of seeing the greatness and bigness of God, he limits God in this way. And the Bible describes his arrogance in this, in this way. <clears throat> so Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. So Jonah's standing in the midst of the revival saying, God, this is evil, this is wrong, I'm unmoved by this, I don't like that your nature is this way, and he selectively uses Scripture to describe God, and instead of going, instead of remembering, okay, God has exercised judgment, God can do whatever he, he wants to do, he's decided to be merciful to Nineveh, 
And in his arrogance, he is a fool, a literal fool. And a man who's wise in his own eyes, Proverbs 26, 12 says, there's more hopeful fool than him. And so there's Jonah. There is to be a valuing of God's word always in our lives. God gave Nineveh 40 days to repent. It didn't take that long. It appears the first day it had caught on. And they're repenting. It took 40 days for Jonah's heart to become full of darkness. It took him a few hours to not recognize this was probably going to be an issue for him. How quickly sometimes it can all fall apart for us when there is a blatant and deliberate disregard for living biblical truth. So Jonah just limits his image of God that all God is is loving. And he's blaming God for his anger. If God would be different, then Jonah would be different. And this leads to why I've got these boxes around the room. Here's the next one. So he's been unmoved. He calls it evil. He fights the nature of God. He selectively uses scripture to create, to say God's only this way and ignores the other passages. And in so doing, if your faith is going to collapse, it will collapse also because of this, that we shape a God because we neglect and and ignore scripture who is not worth treasuring. So Jonah right there in the streets shapes a God that's not really worth treasuring. He doesn't find God as satisfying. And you and I, when we read the Scripture, should always read the Scripture to see God for who He is. Or we will do this. We will shape God in our own image. So I've got big boxes. I've got small boxes. And we want a God that we can manage. And so some of us might say, well, my God's really, really big. And, and when I open up and I look inside and, and I, boy, there are some awesome things about my God. And some of us may have a real tiny God. And we, we want a God that we kind of fit into our box and kind of shape based on the scriptures that we like and the way that we want him to be. And our God's really small and it's, you know, uh, but he's awesome. He's great. And we kind of carry around, and when we look down in there, we're like, man, my God is great. And Jonah has, has got this God box who just says, oh, God, you're just all loving. You're just, you're just loving. And I, I want to say this to us in complete, total honesty. If you and I use the Scriptures to selectively whittle God down to someone that we can manage, and even though it's kind of big and it kind of get heavy, but it's kind of cool to look in there because look at all, man, that person over there, they got a tiny God, but look how big my God is. We do not want a God that we can put in a box. That's not a God. It's a God that we've shaped, but it's not the God. It's not the biblical God. And there's no life found in having a God like this. You may have some emotional experiences and whatever it may be. We want a God who's outside of the box. We want a God who uses the earth as his footstool. We want a God who's so almighty powerful that he can use a reluctant prophet to rescue a city of 600,000 to a million people. So I want you to look at these boxes because we all have a God box at times. And again, Jonah should have just said, you're so big, you're so big, I... I, I, I'm wrestling with what you've done here, God, but I recognize, man, you demand my worship because of who you are. And so he's created this box that he wants God to fit in, and he set the parameters for God to function in. If this is all that our God is like, then he can only function like this. And a God like that is not worth treasuring. Who wants a God that fits in a box? I want a God that can rescue Nineveh. Why is there so little passion and pursuit, somebody might ask, in the church today among God's people? And maybe it's because we shaped a manageable God who's not worth pursuing. He's not worth treasuring. He's really not worth worshiping. Because we have handled him. We want a God 
who powerfully handles us and who powerfully moves. Well, collapse of faith, you do this, you're unmoved by God, call it evil, fight the nature of God, selectively use scripture to attribute what God is like, and so therefore we shape a God who's not treasuring, you will, leave, you will lose life's purpose and meaning. And that's what Jonah says. He says this, just kill me, God. Just kill me. In the belly of the fish, he was about to die, and he said, oh God, let me live. Now after the greatest ministry triumph in his life, he says, oh God, let me die. Early in Jonah 1, he thought his life would end when he was thrown overboard. And Jonah knows this. He's come to know this. His life is in the sovereign hand of God. Even if he wanted to take his own life, he couldn't. So he recognizes, okay, God, can you kill me? Sailors couldn't. You made me swallow. I got vomited up. I didn't die in that. Now I'm in Nineveh. They're cruel people. They didn't kill me. They repented. So my life is in your sovereign hand. So God, will you take my life? He's lost all picture and perspective of purpose and meaning. And sometimes, listen to me, sometimes we get very pouty and just need to get over ourselves. And Jonah's just pouting in the city. And again, he's been okay with his rescue, but not none of us. And Jonah has no interest living and being in a world where God rescues God's enemies. So in light of that, he said, God, will you just remove me from the world? And the pettiness of his anguish is utterly amazing that he would desire death over life when everything in his life is actually good. Is there anything bad in Jonah's life at this moment? Absolutely not. Incredibly good. And he would rather see God limit grace to only Israel. And if God's not going to do that, then God just removed me from the planet. Three things have become his current priority. His desires for God to be the God that Jonah wants him to be. God, Jonah wants his will over God's will. And when you do that, you and I will lose perspective on the purpose of life. And again, as I said, he could have just been honest along the way just to say, God, you know I'm going to have a problem with this, and so help me. Help me. Help my unbelief. Help my weakness. And I've said this before as well, earlier. It's always good to be honest with God about our feelings. Always. Okay, to be honest, but listen, all of our feelings sometimes that we say to God are not justified and right. So be honest and sometimes say, God, I'm being honest about this. I know it's not right, but this is, this is where I am. And so God, help me where it's not right, that I would see that this is not right. So this is the third time, well, the second time. It's the second time, actually, that he's asked to be taken. So he's told the sailors on the boat, chapter 1, throw me overboard and I'll die. I'm okay about dying because I'm not going to Nineveh. So just throw me overboard. Now here he says, let me die. Next week, we'll see next week. He's going to ask a third time, okay, yeah, just take me from the earth. And all of this leads to this. So if we're unmoved, the collapse of faith is going to happen when we're unmoved by God's movement, we attribute God's movement to evil. Um, we fight against his nature that he's being true to himself. We selectively use scripture, and by doing so, we shape a God who's not worth treasuring. And that will always lead to losing our purpose and meaning and understanding of who we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to live, and it all comes because of this. Watch this. God's tapping on his heart, and God's going to ask three questions. We're just dealing with the first one today, and God just says, what right, Jonah, do you have to be angry at me? And Jonah refuses to look at his heart. And that's what God's doing. There's just a, the end collapse is, I'm just not going to look at my heart. My heart's the problem, but I'm not going to do anything about it. This leads us to our last thing this morning. So look at verse 4. And the Lord said, and I'm going to translate the ESV, what right... Do you have to be angry? Our God's the God of questions. Why does he ask questions? Because he's trying to get us to see our heart. It, the questions reveal our heart if we will answer them. And it'll put us on proper ground before God. And so God throughout the scripture has done this. He came, came after the fall in Genesis 3 and he said, Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? What is this that you have done? 
Genesis chapter 4 comes to Cain and says, Hey, Cain, where's your brother Abel? What have you done? 1 Samuel 13, 11, what have you done? 2 Samuel 12, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing evil in his eyes? Isaiah 6, who shall we send? Who's going to go for us? Matthew 16, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Matthew 20, what is it that you want me to do for you? Luke 22, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Acts 9, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So our God's a God of questions. So he asked Jonah in the midst of the revival, why are you so mad? Look around, Jonah. What are you angry about? And God is always going to challenge the childless, childfulness of the hardness of his children. He's going to challenge it. He taps on his heart. Why are you angry? God is right in everything he does, and this was totally lost with Jonah. He is right even when we don't like what he does or understand his ways. God is always right. So let me ask this question. We're going to close with this. I said earlier, is it always right to be honest with God, come to him with our questions, our doubts, our struggles, always come to him. But can our anger at God, is it ever justified? And I would say to you and I, no, it's unjustified anger. And Jonah has unjustified anger at God. So sometimes we feel like we have a right to be angry. James 1.19 says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce, and then remember what it says? The righteousness of God. So, if we're unjustifiably angry at God, then we're angry at His righteousness, and it's wrong. It doesn't, the Scripture says, produce the righteousness of God. Well, I've got a right to be mad at you, God. Really? I know it hurts. I know life's painful, and it's just difficult to deal with it. But Jonah is angry with no legitimacy to it. No merit to it, no validity to it. And God is asking him, why do you as a sinful man feel like you have a right to be angry with me when I choose to do what I want to do with, by the way, let me remind you, my world, not yours. But when we're whittling down like this, we feel like, well, I can tell him what, I can tell him what's up. Well, you tell him what's up, but you better be ready. Put big big boy and big girl pants on and be ready. But here, God is not like going, oh, God, I'm going to smush you. God could have smushed him right there in the city. But God being true to his character, what does he do to Jonah? He's just, okay, okay. I'm going to be patient with you, you knucklehead. And I'm going after your heart. You have no right to be angry at me. And so he's got this anger. And so God asks him. You notice that Jonah didn't even answer. You can go to verse 5 and he didn't. Verse 5, look at verse 5. So Jonah just says, he throws a temper tantrum. And he went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself. there. Well, I'm just going to go out here and I'm going to watch and see if God will judge Nineveh. He's a little baby out there. Pouty prophet. His heart needed to be like God's and he would find life there but he didn't. And so God just says, look, Jonah, remember how merciful I was with you? You were my prophet and you rebelled and I pursued you and rescued you. I stopped your fleeing to an empty life in Spain where you would have been miserable there. I appointed great fish when you were just tied up in the seaweed at the bottom of the mountains and I gave you 72 hours to get things right and I restored you and I recommissioned you. What right do you have to be angry at me? Jonah, I just used you to do something that Moses didn't even get to experience and none of the other prophets got to experience. About a million people or so 
have just repented and gotten their life right with me. You are the most important preacher in the history of the world. So, Jonah, what right do you have to be angry at me? Jonah, look at your life and see what I've done. There's nothing wrong with your life. It's good. It's good. So I just want to be honest with us. Be honest with God. But if you're going to be angry with him, I would be careful. And if I'm going to be angry, it's unjustified. If this is our world, then we could do this. But it's not our world, and so we should do this. God, I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't understand. And so I'm just going to bow before you because you're sovereign. And if you've allowed this pain to come into my life, I don't get it. I don't understand. I didn't do anything to deserve this. It has come at me because somebody was sinful toward me. And, and so, God, why did you do this? And I, I'll say this. I, I think there's some things that we're never going to fully understand in this life that have come to us in our life. And I think we have to live with that tension. We have to live with that and trust that God is every second, every moment, every millisecond, every month, every year, every generation, and every church throughout history, throughout the future, is absolutely good. And so when something comes, even though we don't understand, he's good, and we can trust him. I said in the beginning, one of the things of Jonah is, don't be Jonah. Don't be Jonah. Can I just remind us? Do not be this way. It could have gone different if he'd have just yielded. But he wanted to be in charge. And we make bad gods. Have you noticed that? But he, God, Yahweh, Jesus, Spirit, three in one, make a perfect God who's fully faithful and we can trust. All right, let's pray.